2021. A new year, apparently, but uh, it kind of feels like last year to me. I thought that December 31st was meant to magically fix all this, but here we are. And thank you so much for tuning in today and welcome wherever you are, whether that's at home or on the road or on holidays. We're really glad that this is the choice that you've made to join us online today. And as Andrew said, we're, we're starting a new series. It's only a short series, only four weeks long, Shaped for Mission. And this series, it's going to follow on from a lot of what we had been talking about at, at the end of 2020 and really what we'd been discussing for probably about the last six months. And that is, that is this sense, or it's a, it's a conviction really, that, that quite a radical realignment with the mission of God is being called for. And we're not, we're not unique in this. this. This sense of unsettledness is being felt pretty broadly across the church, it seems. It's been a call back into, into right participation or perhaps into a new participation with the mission of God. It's been a call to refocus on, on being and on, and on making new disciples. It's been a call to simply love one another, to be agents of hope in a world that, that is increasingly needing hope. And in this call back to mission, we've been confronted with the truth that there might even be some attitudes and some beliefs uh, about church that have gone off track. Attitudes and, and beliefs and postures that over time, in the Western church at least, that, that seem to have been shaped by the forces of, of individualism, forces of consumerism, forces of competition and convenience and comfort. And so we're sensing this need to recover something of our true mission shape. And just like the church has had to do many times before, so we must recalibrate to the person and to the purposes of God once more. And it's not going to be comfortable. And we're probably going to resist it. And we're probably going to complain. And some will even fall away. So in this series, we're going to consider what it means to be shaped for mission. We're going to explore the idea that this entire discipleship process, the process of being shaped, being shaped both individually and being shaped collectively as the church is all to be understood within this context of God's Mission And in fact, our, our, our whole understanding of faith, our whole understanding of church, discipleship, theology, of ministry, the whole Christian life must be mission-shaped. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be shaped? And I could also say formed, I could say transformed, I could say moulded or changed by God, I could say discipled. Dallas Willard is an American Christian philosopher. I know that many of us are very familiar uh, with, with his writing and his teaching, and he's probably best known for his writing on this very subject of being shaped by God. And he does this uh, under the banner of spiritual formation. And he says that spiritual formation refers to the process of shaping our spirit, our will, or our heart, 
Shaping our spirit and giving it a definite character, it means the formation of our spirit in conformity with the spirit of Christ. Spiritual formation, Willard says, is the redemptive process of forming the inner human world so that it takes on the character of the inner being of Christ himself. And in the degree to which it's it's successful, the outer life of the individual becomes a natural expression, an outflow of the character and of the teachings of Jesus. And so what Willard and and what other observers of this shaping process have concluded is is that God, by the indwelling work of his spirit, uses everything over an entire lifetime to shape a believer's inner world. Every experience, every relationship, every tragedy, every joy, he uses all things to shape us according to the image of his son and towards his kingdom purposes. We are shaped by God for his mission. And what do we mean by this? What is God's mission? And I know that we spent quite some time talking about this in 2020, but in in the simplest sense, the mission of God is all that he is doing throughout history, through Christ, by his spirit to bring about his ultimate purpose. And that purpose is pretty clear throughout all of scripture, start to finish, and especially so in the New Testament. And Jesus uh, puts it best, of course, and he does this in a prayer to his father, and it's right before he is trialed and he is executed. And this is in John 17, verses 20 and 20, 21. Um, So Jesus is praying, And he says, I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this is us. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. So oneness, oneness with one another and oneness with our triune God. No disconnection, no separation, no fragmentation, no disintegration. Just big, beautiful, diverse, dynamic, eternal oneness. This is God's dream and this is Jesus' prayer. Paul puts it this way in in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, And he has made to us, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And and Paul says the same thing in in the first chapter of Colossians as well. The goal of faith, or rather the goal to which Jesus is eternally faithful, is this radically inclusive, socially unified vision of the kingdom. All things in heaven, all things on earth gathered into Christ. And so his dream, his, his ultimate purpose is this eternal vision of life together. His mission then is everything that he has done. 
It's everything that he will do. And it is everything that he is doing in history to bring his vision about. And now the task of this mission, it's been given to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. Uh, He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. So God is on mission. He is on mission through the Son and in the power of his Spirit to unite or to reconcile all things unto himself. And that includes you and it includes me. And since we have been reconciled to God through Christ, his mission has become our mission. I like this quote by Professor Dr. Wilhelm Richerbacher. It's a good one, isn't it? Wilhelm Richerbacher. He says, there is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. There's no participation in Christ without participation in his mission. Christ is on mission. We are in Christ. And so we are on his mission. So to be on this journey of shaping, this journey of discipleship, is to increasingly participate both in the nature and in the mission of Jesus. It is to resemble his character and it is to join him on mission. And I think for a long time that the church, the church in the West at, at least, and, and me too, I've fallen into the trap of thinking that the purpose of discipleship is moral. That to be discipled to Jesus um, is to become more like Jesus, and that just means to sin less. And it's not that that's wrong, it's just desperately incomplete. It's like a bird with, with only one wing, the, the morality wing, and it's flapping about in some exhausting way and it makes a lot of noise and it looks stupid and it goes nowhere. When we think about discipleship or we think about formation, we think that is just about morality, we have missed the point. All of God's shaping is for his mission. There is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission. I'm going to take the rest of our time together to look at at three very familiar verses. Um, It's Romans 8 verses 28 to 30 and you'll know them. And we're going to look at them in the context, this context of being shaped by God for his mission. And these are actually quite challenging verses and they're they're used to prop up all kinds of of theological positions. And so this week, if you study, rather, this week when you study these verses, I encourage you to do it, you're going to see that there are a number of dogmatic battle lines that are drawn from these these three verses, Romans Romans 8, 28 to 30. 
we're going to need to do a little bit of background work first. So Paul um, is writing uh, the book of Romans. It's a letter to the believers in the Roman church. It's around AD 57. The church is predominantly a Gentile church, though it is the, there are Jews in, in that church as well. Um, it is a, during a time of difficulty, um, some persecution, some, some disagreement, even within the church and, and from outside the church as well. And Paul is writing in anticipation of a visit. I think it's his first visit to the Roman church. If you've read the book of Romans, you'll know that it's a, it's a hard book. All of it forms a pretty dense theological essay. And he's discussing things like the righteousness of God, of the, this oneness between Jews and Gentiles, this complex idea of justification uh, through Christ, freedom from sin and law, some really interesting stuff about Israel, the magnitude of God's love and the practicalities of this Christian life of love together. But right at the guts of Paul's theology is his conviction that salvation is in Christ. En Christo is the term that he uses 216 times throughout his letters. And the idea is that, is that all of the benefits of the Christian life, that salvation is, is by virtue of being united with Christ or in union with Christ by his spirit. And so this has been a topic right through uh, the book of Romans so far. And he start, starts chapter eight, verse one, like this. He says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this union with Christ is the basis of all of Paul's theology, and his theology is fundamentally participatory. If we are in Christo, if we are in Christ, then we participate in Christ's justification. We participate in his family status and ultimately we participate in his, in his inheritance and we participate in Christ's glory. And importantly, if we are in Christ, then logically we participate in his mission and also we participate in his suffering. Paul writes in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering, according to Paul, is completely normal for all who are in Christ. And of course, throughout all of Scripture, we see that God uses difficulty. He uses resistance and he uses suffering to shape and to refine his people for his purposes. And Paul's opinion is that we, we can have complete confidence, even in, perhaps especially in suffering and in adversity, because we are in Christ and we know his story. We know his character and we know his destiny. So perhaps now we're ready to make sense of verses 28 to 30. And we're reading here from the New King James Version. 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So verse 28 is going to be a familiar one. Um, and if you're like me, it's probably been your favourite verse at one point, in, uh, one point or another um, because it's really good news and it's good news for us when things aren't going the way that we'd love for them to go. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And how do we know? We know because of Christ, because his life is our example. If crucifixion and if death can be redeemed for God's purposes, then of course anything can. And who is it that can have this confidence? It's those who love God, those who are in right relationship. It is those who are participating in the mutual love, the mutual agape of God. It's those who are the called, and the Greek word is kaleo, the invited. Those who are invited according to his purposes. And we'll get to his purposes in verse 29, but these are not two different groups of people. These are the same people. It is those who are invited into right relationship. In Paul's words, those who are in Christ. So for those who are in Christ, we can have confidence that all things will work together for good. All things will converge, will come together for God's eternal purpose. All things means that everything is co-opted into God's mission. Everything is redeemed according to his purpose. And so if you are in Christ, therefore, this means that everything is mission. You are his full-time instrument of goodness. And it's not because you are good, but because he is, and you are in him. This verse is not a promise of, of some personal or some individual well-being or an easy life in this age. Neither is it saying that God wills or that he causes all things, rather that he is a redeemer and that he will take every facet of this broken existence and he will cause it to work for good. It is a declaration of just how adamant, just how clever, just how all-encompassing God is when it comes to achieving his dream. And Paul wants to affirm that even suffering, even the worst, the most tragic, the most painful things about this life are not a diversion from God's loving purpose. He says this in verse 35 and 37. He, he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So even when we think he is far away, even in the midst of pain and stupidity and ignorance and weakness and humiliation and injustice and tragedy and failure and heartbreak, God's purposes will not be derailed. Instead, he will employ all things to bring about his purpose and to form the character of Christ within us. Nothing is wasted. And so where does this assurance come from? We look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And some translations might say the firstborn um, of a large family of many brothers and sisters. And so here is God's purpose. Here is his dream. A great big family. And we're called. We, we are invited according to this purpose to be a part of this destiny. The great family with God as our dad. Paul writes in, in verse 15, he says... For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, for whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But this is where it gets tricky. So who are we talking about here? Who did God foreknow? Who is predestined? And there's a number of theories on this, and I reckon we need to take real care as we understand this passage, because some interpretations can end up making quite a monster out of God and can suggest that, that he predestined some people from before all of creation to be a part of this family vision while dooming others to eternal separation. I think that the interpretation that is consistent with, with the rest of Paul's theology is that it is Jesus, the eternal son, the Christ who is the foreknown and the predestined one. Jesus is the chosen one from all eternity. He is the one who is conformed to the image of the father's eternally begotten son. And it is the resurrected Jesus, clearly who is the firstborn among many brethren. Karl Barth was, was probably the most influential Protestant theologian of last century. He says that Jesus is the only predestined one. For you and I, we, we are predestined insofar or only insofar as we are to be found in him, in Christo, in Christ. So this is how we know that everything will work, work out according to his purposes, because God has destined it. The Father predestined the Son from before all time to be the firstborn of his great family, destined from all eternity past. It is a done deal. Now here's the even better bit in verse 30. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So here is our assurance by participation. If Christ is the predestined one, then you and I are the invited ones, the called. And it is, it is within him that the called are justified and are glorified. Justified means that right relationship is restored. That, you, that right relationship, uh, this oneness within the Father and the Son and the Spirit has been brought about. It is those who love God. It is those who have been adopted as his children. It is those in Christ that are justified. And not only are we brought into, into right relationship, we are also glorified. This means that we share in Christ's inheritance. And this is crazy. So look at verse, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together, sharing in his inheritance. It is within Christ that we are corporately justified and glorified. Our destiny has been stitched together with Christ's destiny. It has nothing to do with you or with me or what you've done or what we haven't done. If you are in Christ, then it's Christ's destiny that has become your destiny. And so we can have this great assurance. We can have this great confidence that insofar as we are in Christ, in communion, if you like, that indeed all things, work together for good, for his purposes. And we've read the end of the book and we know that Jesus gets what he prays for. So for right now, for you and I, that means that God is, is both shaping us and he is deploying us as instruments of his goodness as ministers of his purpose and regardless of what's going on around us he has given us this ministry of reconciliation of proclaiming and of demonstrating this oneness in him we have a whole of life mission of inviting others into the family in, in Matthew 22, Jesus says, invite everyone you can. Doesn't matter if you're eight or if you're 80. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or, or male or female or, or clever or not so much, so much. It doesn't matter. We are all invited into Christ and thus into his mission of calling others in full confidence that Christ has, has already done everything that is necessary. Jesus has met every requirement for them to be adopted into this big and diverse and weird family of God and to share in the Son's inheritance. Because we know 
that our destiny is fused with his. It is very good news. The question is, is do we believe it? Do we believe that he has already invited us into his family and called us his children? Do we believe that he can take our messy and disordered and and sometimes painful lives and, and cause it to be part of his redemptive story? Do we believe that that by his spirit that he is in us and that we are in him and that he's been shaping us and molding us to the image of his son for his purposes? Do we believe that he is already using us to be Christ to our family and our friends, our students, our bosses, our neighbours? That we are living invitations to the family of God. This is what I believe. I believe, just like Jess, in fact, I believe that we can step into this new year in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of uncertainty. We can step in full confidence that God's vision has not been disrupted in any way. In fact, it's been accelerating. It is in full swing. He is building and growing his family. And if, if we accept his invitation, then he will use you and he will use me and he will use our circumstances and he will use all things to bring about his good and his eternal purposes. It's a done deal. So let me pray. So God, I want to give you thanks for the assurance that we have in Christ. That we know through your word, through the witness of your spirit to ours, that his destiny is assured that you have grafted us into the person of Jesus. That his destiny is our destiny. Lord, I ask that that you would cause that to be known within us and among us in a whole new way, that the world might believe that you sent your son. Father, we ask that you would shape us by your spirit, that even in these, these difficult days that you would be forming us, that you would be sending us out as living invitations to your family. We ask these things in the name of your Son and by the the power of your Spirit.